0: Well, this year's Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival, April 26 to May 6, will feature the world premiere of Backman. From why so- <laughs> I said it like Backman, Backman. From sold-out stadiums to a cameo on The Simpsons, Randy Backman reached rock royalty status decades ago, and now in his 70s, 70s, seriously, he's still taking care of business, performing live. Uh, working with young artists and hosting a national radio show featuring the musicians he admires a man who achieved the rare feat of number one hits with two different bands American Woman and guess who and you ain't seen nothing yet Backman Turner Overdrive Randy Backman he's like the rock and roll lifestyle guy in many ways but in some ways he's not we we'll talk lots about that but his latest album by George, by Backman, Songs of George Harrison is available right now. You want to go to his website and, uh, and and buy as much as you can. He's got tickets for all of these gigs coming up. He's got books that he's written. He's got CDs. Probably sells locks of hair. The guy has the best hair. Seriously. I'm Well, I'm jealous of anybody with hair, but his is just amazing. Randy Backman on the Drew Marshall Show. Randy. You're on your way to Visalia. Hi, Visalia?
1: Yeah, I, n- I never heard of
0: it either. <laughs>
1: I never, I never heard
0: of it. <laughs> That's funny, man. You
1: know, I got to know, were you a cowboy there or something? Did you ride horses or something?
0: Yeah, I was a head wrangler at a ranch just outside of Visalia. I actually rode my horse into Visalia to get groceries one time. Wow. That was weird. And I, I, I rodeoed back then and there I mean that's a huge cow town. Huge rodeo town. There's a there's a big agricultural community around that, that whole area. So anyway.
1: Well, we're looking forward to it. I think we're playing the legendary Fox Theater.
0: Yeah. No, it's a sweet place. I can't remember I saw somebody there. I can't remember who it was. Um hey, what's it like being the new best friend of Lenny Kravitz? <laughs> Seriously, that um, I mean for him to record that I mean, that's just gotta be raking in the coin.
1: Uh, it was a, quite a surprise. I have six versions of American Woman that he sent me, and they only put two out. So I've got this these demos he did at home with his computer, which are very obviously special. Yeah. And then uh, I don't know if you saw Jimmy Fallon two nights ago. Oh, yeah. He and he and um, Kevin Bacon did American Woman, and they dressed <laughs> up like the guess who, and this is like the orig- origins of the song. It's called The Little Skid He Does. Yeah, that, and that. then there's another there's another great one of Lenny Kravitz and Prince on New Year's Eve about oh five or six years ago doing American Woman for twelve minutes and it's incredible <laughs> as well. He, you know what? He really has brought back the
0: remember the old comedic Johnny Carson sketch <laughs> stuff, right? And there aren't many late night yeah. guys that are
1: doing that, but he's killing it. Yeah, he's he's pretty good. I like when he has uh, Justin Timberlake on because Justin is like the all rounded. Oh yeah, comedian, dancer, writer, singer, guitar, piano, drums. He's like, yeah, he's, he's like probably married. he's Justin Bieber's idol. Idol. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, when Fallon did,
0: uh, he and Neil Young. Do you remember that Neil Young cover? That yeah. they, that was crazy. Anyway, look, man, yeah. you are you are known for your stories. Your stories are legendary, and the the vinyl tap thing that you do. I mean, when that first hit the airwaves, I could there was a there were a few times where I couldn't get out of the car because I couldn't stop listening, and I really hated you for a little bit of time
1: your stories are phenomenal I've got, a, I've got i've got that from a lot of guys that say they're driving home they don't, they just sit in their driveway for half an hour till the show is over and their wife and kids are saying why aren't you coming in the house they don't want to miss like a minute or go in the house and try to get it on the radio
0: <laughs> well uh, a buddy of mine named tommy emmanuel has some really incredible chet atkins stories and but you have a killer les
1: paul story can you share that please well, I have a Chad Atkins story as well, but uh, here's, and I only, I only found out the ending to this story two years ago. So I was about 15. Uh, I was in Winnipeg. I obviously, uh, you know, we're just getting into guitar through Elvis, Chuck Berry, you know, that whole, the beginning of the guitar wave kind of thing. And um, Les Paul was playing in Winnipeg, the other side of Winnipeg. Um, I had to take a bus, obviously, I didn't have a car or anything. And so I uh, left school, took a bus to the other side of Winnipeg, which is a big deal. It's like three transfers. And I got to the Pembina Highway, which is, you know, towards the USA. And I went to this club called the Rancho Don Carlos. Huh. And it was a supper club, so it served liquor. And so when I got there, the guy was just opening. It was like 4.30 in the afternoon. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, I came to see Les Paul, and I had Les's album under my arm for him to sign. And he said, well, do you have an adult with you? And I said, no. I'd, I'd even tell my parents I'm coming because they wouldn't let me come. And he said, Well, you can't get in. It's a, it's a drinking club, you know, and you, so you can't get in. I said, You've you got to be kidding. He said, No. So I went to sit at the bus stop, which is right in front of the place. I'm sitting at the grass, uh, on the grass, and uh, a big Cadillac pulls up, and the window rolls down, and a voice says, Hi, kid, what are you doing? And I look, and it's Les Paul, and beside him is Mary Ford, and in the back seat is his son, Gene, who played drums. Yeah. Um, and he says, what are, you, what are you doing? And I said, I came to see you tonight. Would you sign my album? But I can't get in. And, and then because it's a, it's a, they serve alcohol and it's a supper club. And he said, I'll get you in. <laughs> Hang around. So he signed the album. And he said, but you have to stand in the kitchen. You can't go out in the crowd. So watch me through these doors. And this right beside the stage was double swinging doors. You've probably seen this in saloons with big round windows that the waiters walk through carrying dinner and drinks on trays, and the big round windows are so they won't kick each other in the face and knock the trays (laughs) off, right? So he could stand beside these, and he had six Ampex single-track tape recorders all stacked up there. And then he had a big cable that ran from them to his Les Paul guitar, and he had this thing called the Pulverizer, the Les Pulverizer, that started and stopped each of these machines uh, and recorded. So he would be out in the audience and say, Here's how I record. And he'd play the rhythm. And then he'd push, you know, and record. Then he'd push play. He would play it back. And then he'd play bass with it. Then he'd play a guitar. Then Mary Ford would sing. They both had Les Paul guitars, but out of the guitar came a, a, a gooseneck, a microphone. So you could bend the mic towards you and it was, was, came out of the guitar. So they could walk around to the table. So I sat there all night watching the back of Les Paul and these tape recorders starting and stopping. And at the end of the night, he came back and he said, here, hold this. And he handed me his Les Paul guitar, which had to weigh about 20 pounds. Cause it had this pulverizer on it, this control, and a microphone and, the, you know, and all that stuff. And then was all done, he said, anything else I could do? And I said, yeah, please show me a lick in How High the Moon. There's a special lick that's in every, it's in every Les Paul song. So he showed me the lick, and it was really great. And then I go home and I've got his autograph. And many, many years later, um, I'm touring with Van Halen. Uh, we play the um, Nassau Coliseum in Long Island outside of New York City. And who comes to see Eddie but Les Paul? Les Paul. Sure. And he says hi to Eddie and he shakes hands with Eddie and he shakes hands with Sammy Hager, who was singing with him at the time. And he comes up to me and he goes, Do I know you? <laughs> and I go, Well, I met you like 30, 30 years ago um, at the Rancher Don Carlos. And he said, Here, hold this, kid. And I, what, you remember me? He said, yeah, you held my guitar, and I showed you the run. <laughs> how high the moon. And I said, fantastic. And then, two years ago, I go to Neil Young's birthday party, 70th birthday, at the Troubadour in L.A. And Neil Young says, you know that story you tell about Les Paul? And I go, yeah. And he says, well, I was out front at the front table. And I go, what? <laughs> and he says, my, my mother took me and bought, she bought dinner. If you bought dinner, you could have a child with you because you bought them a... A grilled cheese sandwich and you had a drink with your dinner. <laughs> and so I only found out that Neil was actually there. I was backstage watching the tape recorders, and the back of us fall and Neil had a table out front.
0: That's ridiculous. Wow. That's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> Tim Conway was on my show a little while ago and he tells the best stories about he and Harvey Korman. But that story you just told might
1: have been my all-time favorite story right there. Well, there in between those events uh, I went to his club which was called the Iridium Uh, in new york and he played there every monday night and so i go down there and i'm in the audience and you have to sign in when you come in the door so he says there's a lot of famous guitar players that have come here tonight and there's one out there that i want to bring up on stage i'm wondering who is who is this guitar player and then he calls out my name (laughs) and so i go on stage i'm stunned i go on stage and he says uh i showed this guy a run like 30 years ago and I met him at the Van Halen concert a few years ago, and I want to play How High the Moon, and I want him to play the guitar run in the exact spot. So he starts playing How High the Moon, and I play the run in the exact spot, and then he says to me, let's do one of your songs. I go, what? Give me an easy song. So I say, okay, this is three chords. It's called Taking Care of Business. <laughs> I, do, I do Taking Care of Business, and he plays with me, and I have this on tape. My road manager bought the first digital recorder, a uh, video recorder in New York City. And my, so he recorded it for me. Wow. And so we sit, we sit there, and I play that. And he invites me to his place in Maupon, New Jersey, which apparently is two, almost two square blocks of building all joined together. And he's got his studio in and his guitar-making thing and his pickup-winding thing and his ampic thing. He's got all this junk for years, which is not junk to us. Yeah. It's treasures if you're a guitar player. Sure. And he invites me there the next day. And he gives me directions, and the next day is nine one one, and I wake up to the airplane crashed into the building. Oh. All of New York is closed. Oh, I can't get on a subway, or I can't get in um, over the bridge. And New York is closed for three days because it was nine one one. So that's like my full Les Paul story.
0: That's unbelievable, unbelievable, man. Yeah, Randy Backman on the line with us. Your guitar collection, I've heard legendary stories about it in the humidity controlled room and salt spring island the whole thing or whatever but i, I this is what i really want to know and i don't know if you can share this or not but how much did frank zappa offer you for your 59 less paul
1: well at the time i didn't know what it was worth he did he had when he played it on stage so he kept saying do you want a couple hundred bucks <laughs> would you like 300 bucks, 400 bucks. And I said, well, it's my only guitar. <laughs> the next night, how, how about 500 bucks? No. How about 700 bucks? No, I'm sorry. It's my only guitar. <laughs> and so I obviously didn't sell it to him. Later on, that became the American Woman guitar and the No Time guitar and the Sound of the Guess Who. And now it's valued over a million dollars. And it's in the National um, Museum in Calgary, the National Music Center in Calgary. Um, And it was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland for many years as well. Uh,
0: Wow, just insane.
1: Um, okay, I, I want to go through a, a quick
0: run-through, uh, you know, sort of a this-is-your-life thing, but I won't, I won't bore you with details of your own life. Let me just see. What I really want to know is if this is correct. So here we go. Five years old, playing classical violin on stage in a little tuxedo. Would have loved to have seen that. Late 50s, you know, you're, you get the early American bandstand stuff that you're checking out, the Dick Clark tours. You're watching Elvis do his thing with an axe on stage. You're like, screw the violin. I'm in with the axe. Winnipeg in the late 60s the winter's absolutely brutal so you stay inside and rock out. Uh, I read this somewhere and I'm not sure if it's true or not. If it is then you and I've got something goofy in common. The last grade of high school you completed was grade 9 and then and then you pretty much bombed grade at 10 and 11 and was asked not to return to school. And that exact same thing happened to me. But you did pass Fizet, I hope. Is that true?
1: I hated Fizet because <laughs> playing Playing violin, your teacher says to you from the age of five on, you can't play football. You can't play baseball. If a ball hits your finger or you get your finger bruised, you can't play violin. So I never played. I I played hockey a little bit because you wore those gloves that had slats of bamboo and it protected your fingers. (laughs) And my dad was the coach of the hockey team. And all that, but I played hockey for one season and got bumped into the boards too many times. I was pretty much a sissy. If you see young Sheldon, that was kind of like me. Kind of like, like me with a violin, right? Oh, man. Well, then your uh, phonographic
0: memory took you to places you'd never dreamed of. Uh, Alan the Silvertones, which became Chad Allen, and the expressions, which became the guess who, and... And then in 1969, Backman Cummings gives birth to their first hit of many, These Eyes. And then in 1970, American Woman was being played everywhere. And even a young six-year-old Lenny Kravitz was probably listening to it. And, And what I want to know throughout this whole story of yours was, at 7.45 every morning, my mom would wake me up to CFRB's Toronto, you know, the Toronto Talk radio station, Wally Crowder, Betty Kennedy, Gordon Sinclair. But I want to know... What did you and your mom listen to at seven forty-five
1: every morning? It was called "Beefs and Bouquets," <laughs> and if you had a if you, if you had a beef, it was a complaint. Right, and a bouquet was like a thank you, and the, and the beef was a complaint. And it was on CJLB in Winnipeg at seven forty-five. So my mother would listen to that, and people would say, "Oh, a big bouquet to the the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who won." You know, the, the big football game, blah, blah, blah. They beat the Stampeders or whatever. And a big beef to the snow removal who didn't show up and do my sidewalk, <laughs> and now I've got to go up there and shovel a whole block. Yeah. So people were complaining and giving these kind of things. And one of them is um, a woman who calls in and says, I saw Neil Young and the Squires play last Saturday, and they were just an amazing band, and they're playing next Friday at the Crescentwood Community Center. And Neil Young's just the greatest guitar player and all this stuff. And so I say to my mother, This guy must be incredible in this band. He's got, like, women are phoning the radio station. He must have a fan club. And she said, are you kidding? That's his mother. I know her voice. (laughs) (laughs) And it was Neil's mother who had phoned in. So I said to my mother, look, if Neil's mother can phone in, I want you to phone in and say, Randy Bachman's a great guitar player. He plays with the guest, Who." And then Burton Cummings' mother heard the same thing. So Rhoda Cummings starts calling in. (laughs) Trying to make their voice like their teenage girl go, Oh, I saw Burton Cummings play with the Beverly and he's such a great singer. So, all, all the mothers started doing that. The Bob mother, whose name was Rassi Raglan, she was a TV uh, celebrity in Winnipeg. She did a thing called 20 Questions or What's My Line, yeah. where you had to guess, and she was one of the panel. So, my mother idolized her because she was on TV. She made her own money, she had her own fan club, and all that stuff.
0: Oh, that's funny, man. You've, you can just have the best stories. Okay, what is your beef? about the Canadian music industry, and what bouquet would you like to offer the Canadian
1: music industry? My beef is enormous, and it's not just my beef, it's everybody's beef. Classic radio stations make an absolute fortune playing all of my hits, all of everyone's hits, from the 60s and 70s. And when we put out a new album, we can't get any airplay. So I think it's a very unfair balance, that they play a, a short list of 350 songs that they rotate. And if you listen to them, they're no, they're no different than any other country station. They have like a three-hour playlist. If you hear it at 210, you heard it 510 and 810, you hear it at the same time. It's like it's a loop like that. And so if I put out a new album, or Neil Young, or Gordon Lightfoot, or Tears for Fears, or Heart, or, or anybody puts out a new album, and we're still good, and, we're, and Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood, we can't get any airplay on these stations. They don't even do, here's Steve Winwood, with Give Me Some Love, and here's Steve, Steve Woodward right now with a new track. Here's Eric Clapton with Sunshine of Your Love, and here's Eric Clapton right now. Here's Randy Bachman with, you know, American Woman, and here he is right now, and I can't get any airplane. It's, it's really a shame.
0: And But that's interesting because you do that on Vinyl Tap, right? You will do the back-to-back comparison between what was and what is. So obviously that's where well, it comes I did, from. I
1: try, to do on, I try to do on Vinyl Tap, which, which is what's missing from radio, commercial radio now in my life. Yeah which is a very varied playlist, telling stories about the artists, who they are, where they're from, who they might have played with before, who's playing on the record, tell a story about who wrote the song or if I know them, and I'm very lucky. I've been in this business a long time. I have a really good memory, and I've never done drugs or alcohol. I've been pretty much, as you say, a Christian spiritual guy my whole life, and I remember all these things, and I have great enjoyment diving into my vinyl collection. That's why it's called Vinyl Tap, and tapping into my collection and playing... The, all my old vinyl and telling stories about it.
0: Unbelievable, unbelievable. Okay, so well, hold on. I, you know, here's my problem. I I got I told uh, I told Tal this yesterday. He and I were texting. By the way, Randy has a son named Tal, but we're not going to talk about him because he gets way too much attention on this show. Um, I told your son I was I got stuck down this rabbit hole, this vortex of researching you yesterday, and I was like four hours watching interviews and. And uh, just all the stuff about you is so interesting. So Burton joins the guess who in '96, or sorry, 1966. And Skip Prokop and I had before, obviously he passed uh, last year. He and I used to have this conversation about who had the best rock voice: Burton Cummings or Bob McBride. And he would say he felt Bob McBride had a better rock voice from a power point of view. I mean, he would he would destroy the diaphragms in the SM58s. And but he, he felt that Burton had sort of a better control of his voice, a more melodic voice. Like, who do you think had the better rock voice?
1: No comparison, Burton Cummings. Really? If you take the top ten rock singers in the world, and up in the top three or four are Elvis, Robert Plant, maybe Steven Tyler, guys like that, Burton Cummings is in the top ten. I don't think Bob McBride's in the top 40. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he had a good voice, but, I mean, Burton could do ballads like These Eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scatting Like Undone, scream his face off an American woman, and some of the other. Uh, he did absolutely everything. When you listen to These Eyes and try to sing it, it's like an Elton John song. It's very, or Roy Orbison. It fools you. It's about four and a half octaves, and not many people can sing that song note for note all the way through. It's an amazing vocal performance, and Burton sang it when he was, like, 17 or 18. Man. Okay, so
0: you leave the Guess Who in the summer of 1970, around that time Neil was finished with Buffalo Springfield, and then uh, the band Brave Belt began. Thank you, Neil, for that. Uh, but I'm, yeah. act- I'm actually more fascinated and interested in this story, because there's a rumor out there that you, you saved Neil Young's life from a life of drugs, of hard drugs. Can you
1: share that story with us, please? <laughs> well, I, I told that story, and Neil had never even heard it. Uh, Neil was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame last September at uh, Massey Hall. So I was asked by Neil and Elliot, his manager, if I would go and give a little 10 or 15-minute you know, ramble about growing up and knowing Neil in Winnipeg at that time. And so I, say to, I, tell, about, I tell about his mother phony CGOB for Beats and Bokeh, and I get a big laugh out of that. And in between, I'm playing songs like Sugar Mountain and, and Old Man and telling how Neil wrote them and who he wrote them about, and stuff like that. And I say, now I need to tell you a secret, how I think I saved Neil Young's life, or how I thought I saved Neil Young's life. And the whole place goes quiet. And Neil's face goes into shock. <laughs> Elliot's face goes into shock. He's sitting with Daryl Hannah, who's the new lady in his life, and her face goes into what? What is this story? And I say, well, I was walking downtown Vancouver, and this big bus goes by. I mean, I look at the back of the bus, and this beautiful carved wood thing that says Buffalo Springfield again. If you look at the album, Buffalo Springfield, again, it was all carved into wood with beautiful Buffalo Springfield, again, with arrows, like broken arrow and lassoes and stuff like that. It was really amazing. And so I know it's Neil's bus, so I go knock on the door, and the, all the people in Vancouver are looking at this bus, because the big sign outside the Orpheum Theater, he's playing there that night. So I go knock on the door, and they open the door, and I go in, I say hi to Neil, and he's there, and I know his bus driver, I know his family, his son Ben is there. And so I say hi to his kids, and then I go into the concert. And um, they're setting up doing a sound check, and Neil says, Do "You want to come and play tonight on stage?" And I go, "Wow! You mean I could be Steven?" Feels fabulous. I'll call home and get a guitar. And then as I'm leaving, and my guitar is coming in a taxi, one of his crew says to him, "Let's go get stretched." And I go, "Oh, oh! What does that mean?" And Neil says, yeah, it's, it's about time, and I'm ready to get stretched. And I go, oh, my God. And that's when Steve Martin had out the jerk. Remember, he said, let's yeah. get small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought it was a, thought it was a drug reference. And, and Grace Slick think, one pill makes you larger, one pill makes you smaller. <laughs> He's going to be doing some weird drug. He's going to be overdubbing and, and turning into rubber man, right, and something <laughs> like that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save his life. So I run outside to the taxi. I get my guitar. I come back in. And I'm looking downstairs in the catacombs in the, where the dressing rooms are. Yeah. And I hear these two male voices. And they're kind of moaning. And they're going, oh, man, that's fabulous. Oh, do you like that, man? Oh, it's great. Oh, man, that's fabulous. And I peek around the corner for you, I've got to stop this if they're ODing on something. And what do you think they're doing? They're stretching.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: they're actually stretching. They have... He's with a guy who is his personal trainer. Yeah. They have their soles of their feet against the soles of their feet. They're reaching hands, their gut hands, and they're pulling each other back and forth like they're rowing a boat. But they're stretching Neil's back because he has a bad back like me from playing guitar for years and years. He and I both had juvenile polio or what it was called back in Winnipeg in the polio epidemic in the 60s. Huh. And so we both have weak, weak backs and playing guitar doesn't help it. So I look around the corner, and there they are, really stretching. So that got me a huge <laughs> laugh at this induction into
0: the Hall of Fame. On the line with Randy Bachman, uh, the guys got better stories than anyone I've ever had on the show in fifteen years. Yeah. Seriously, um, ain't seen nothing yet and taking care of business. Both, you know, serendipitous accidents the way they came about. But let me tell you, I'm so glad that white collar worker got rejected by your bandmates time and time again. Because, yeah, me too. Oh man. Thankful, also thankful for your Winnipeg Ukrainian-style version of Oye komova little Louie Louie and yes, Chuck Berry thrown in, yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, that's, I'm telling you, man, take care of business. I don't know what it is. When I, so I, when I go to the gym, I work out to bagpipes. I think I'm the only human being that does that, because I just want to, it just gets me fired up, man. I want to pound someone in the, in, anyway, so bagpipes. But the only other song that I'll slip into my bagpipe playlist is Taking Care of Business. Dude, that song fires me up. I don't know what it is. It's insane. And I think everyone feels the same way or felt the same way about that song at SARS Fest, right? That's why like, that's like half a million hands were clapping to Taking Care of Business. Incredible.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. When I did SARS Fest, there was like a half a million people there. So when I said, clap your hands, a million hands went up in the air. And My daughter, who was very young at the time, was on stage with me at the, over at the side. And I said, what did that look like? She said, a giant package of McDonald's French fries. <laughs> <laughs> Good. When you get the fries, you can see sticking out of the red box right up in the air. And so <laughs> yep, yep. she sees one million arms sticking up in the air. And in her little mind, she's like four or five years of age. She says to me, it looks like the world's largest McDonald's french That's fries. To see all those hands in the air.
0: That's funny. Rolling Stones, ACDC, Rush, Jim Belushi. But everyone goes bonkers at taking care of business. That was incredible. So here's the deal. Uh, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, Elvis Costello, George Harrison, and Randy Bachman all have one thing in common. They're all non-singers who sing. You're in pretty good category there, dude.
1: Yes, I am. And I would credit Neil Young for that because when he came back to Winnipeg on one of his trips and I was in between bands and he played me this acetate of Buffalo Springfield 1. And I hear this incredible voice and I go, wow, who's that? And he goes, that's Stephen Stills. And I go, wow, great husky voice, wonderful tone. I hear another great voice, it's Richie Furet, and I go, wow, what a beautiful, clean, clear voice, it's like Burton Cummings' voice. And then I hear this song that goes, out of my mind, and I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> and it sounds like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> and Neil says, it's me, I'm singing, and I go, are you kidding? <laughs> and he goes, no, if you heard of this guy, Bob Dylan, he doesn't care about hitting the notes, he writes great lyrics. He enunciates the lyrics so everybody knows what they are, and you don't need to be a great singer anymore to sing, so start singing. Just write really good lyrics and make them real easy so people can remember. Make an easy melody line, and so I started like singing real-time stuff, because up to then I only really really sang harmony in the guest, so I sang all the Brian Wilson parts in 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 um, in the Beast Boy song, and in no time I'm singing the high voice, and so I always just sat back and played guitar and just sang the high parts.
0: Well, I mean, obviously there's a connection there for you to do this this latest album of yours by George by Backman, Songs of George Harrison. Uh of course you you did that instead of Songs by McCartney or Songs by Lennon. I mean, that's just the right it's just the right pocket. You know, you know, I've heard you saying a few times that you're really not a singer. Um but but I also Neither noticed was Neither was
1: George. Either was George. Yeah. You yeah. see, it's easy, it's easy to sing a George Harrison song. It's like a Bob Dylan song or a Neil Young song or a Leonard Cohen song. It's about five notes. <laughs> it's not like what I said These Eyes is, which is four and a half octaves. Yeah. We sing four and a half notes, not four and a half octaves. <laughs> but you know what's interesting about your, so, your, your vocals? And way, way back, in, way back in the Guess Who era, yeah. when we were doing Beatles songs, I always waited for the album and I would sing the George Harrison song so I sang them all my life and so for me to go through this spiritual change in my life of moving losing a companion of, of five or six years it really broke my heart we just weren't compatible after all the love and all that kind of stuff and I'm looking at changing and changing myself as a person because when there's a breakup it's not just them 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 it's half me and half them, or half you and half her, or whatever, or you leave a band, it's not just you, it's the rest of the guys in the band, it's all of you, you're all going through changes every day. We go through changes and everything changes. And so I'm going through this spiritual transformation, I'm doing meditation, I had a, a uh, what's it called intervention with my manager and my lawyer, and I go, what are you guys talking about? How can you do an intervention with me? I don't drink or smoke or do drugs or anything. And they said, yeah, but you're angry, and you carry this regret, and you've got to let it go because you have no room in your heart for love and all this stuff. I going. are you giving me this new age stuff? And when I really thought, well, maybe these guys really care about me and I'll listen to them, and I did, it was life-changing. Really? So to do this George Harrison album, I wrote a song called Between Two Mountains, which I envisioned, this is what George must have felt like, showing up to a recording session with Mount Lennon and Mount McCartney, who each show up with 30 songs. They collaborate, and when they get bored and tired of each other, they might say, hey, George, you got a song? And he says, yeah, I have a song called Tax Man. I have a song called Something. I have a song called Don't Bother Me. And he gets to do a song. Hmm. And so I, I wrote the song Between Two Mountains. And then I, then I thought, gee, we all go through our life between two mountains, the mountains of good and the mountain of evil. And sometimes you climb the wrong mountain. You climb the wrong the mountain of evil for a while, and then you fall down. You go, oh, my God, I'm hurting people. I'm hurting myself. Um, I'm, I'm destroying my legacy or I, you know, I, I don't have a good reputation and you go and climb the mountain of good again. And so the, I wrote that song. That's kind of a very spiritual song for me that I felt George Harrison helped me write. His spirit was there in my Oakville house, in my bedroom. I woke up feeling this spirit at three in the morning and I went next door to my little studio in my house and wrote the lyrics to that song. And it's, it's a very spiritual song for me.
0: Incredible stuff, man. You know, um, when Strombo interviewed you a few years ago about your book, Tales from Beyond the Tap, you talked about calling people up and apologizing for stuff. And uh, Randy, I'm doing a ton of that these days. Same kind of reasons that you've been processing as well. Do you have any advice for me in regards to, to, you know, looking in the mirror and going, oh, wait a second, you've got these fractured relationships. Oh, wait, who's the common denominator?
1: You are. Like, what advice do you have for me? I did this once at a man's weekend in Portland where you go and you just spill your guts and you tell everything that happened to you and everything you did to other people as knee jerk reactions or really thinking about it or when I left the guess who what were they thinking? Never mind what I was thinking, what were they thinking? When I broke up with my first wife, what was she thinking? That never mind what I was thinking, mm-hmm. what was she thinking? What did I do to trigger that kind of thing? And part of this weekend and I'll, I'll tell this to all your listeners and it's a wonderful thing to share and I've had Big, rough, tough, tugboat, dump truck, biker guys come up to me saying they did this and it changed their life. Go into the bathroom of your house. Most bathrooms don't have a window. Go in in the dark. Kneel down so all you can see in the mirror is your own face. Put out the lights, light a candle. So all that's there between you and the mirror is the candle. Look into your own eyes and say, I love you. And see, how many times can you say that, looking in your own eyes? until tears start pouring down your cheeks. And by the, if you can do that 12 or 50 or 60 or 100 times, you're literally sobbing. And when it's all done, somehow you forgive yourself and you love yourself. And then you get up and you can go to the person in the next room, be it your mother or father or wife or brother, and you could then love them because you can now love yourself and you've now got room in your heart for love. And it's an amazing thing when that happens. And the whole Beatles thing, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, all those guys, they put their career on the line. They could have kept singing, you know, about whatever. But they they sang War is Over. Peace is, oh, peace is here if you want to give peace a chance. War is over. Bangladesh save the people. All you need is love. Everything about the Beatles was love. Their thing in Vegas is called love. And so you, when you listen to my By George album, there's so many love messages in there. And Tal's been playing in my band now, and it's really weird at the end of the night, People used to stand up and chant, Randy, Randy, or BTO, BTO. Now they chant, we love you, we love you, we love you. If there's nothing like walking off stage for an encore and having two or 3,000 or 10 or 12 people chanting, we love you. It's absolutely mind-boggling. It's the greatest high of all time. Man, you are killing me. Oh, uh. it's absolutely amazing. In the middle of this whole thing, and vinyl is out now on my album. And there's a little symbol at the bottom of my album on the vinyl, and it's on my poster, of two circles. And it's two circles of love that interact. It's called Zero One. If you go to ZeroOne.com, Z-E-R-O-O-N-E.com, this guy came to me, and he was a kind of a spiritual advisor. Um, and he said to me, I want to put the symbol on your arm. And it was like a little tattoo. And it's six circles, three circles on one side, three in the other, and they all interact. So he put these tattoos on me, just with not real tattoos, but, you know, the little water ones that we used to have when we were kids. Yeah, yeah. He puts one on, he, she puts one on each arm. And he goes, um, I said, so what are these? And he's a chiropractor. He's my chiropractor. And he says, well, and he's Jewish. He says, well, at Hanukkah last year, this is last December, I put this on 26 of my friends who were all at a big Hanukkah party. I didn't tell them what it was. It's a love symbol that they discovered in a pyramid in the Mayan temple in, in Central America, and they discovered the same symbol in, in Egypt. What are the odds of that? How did it get on the ceiling that's 65 feet high? How did these circles, concentric circles, get up there on the ceiling? Nobody knows that. It's an alien love symbol or peace and energy kind of thing. And so I go back to him two weeks later, and he goes, how do you feel? I said, I feel fabulous. And he said, so they're working. And I said, what's working? He said, the tattoos. I said, are you kidding? He said, no. I've had people call me that. I put them, I put these tattoos on them. At the Hanukkah party, there, some of the guys couldn't sleep more than three hours a night. They're now sleeping seven hours a night. They're now at peace with themselves. A woman who's been trying to get pregnant for four and a half years got pregnant. <laughs> oh. These are incredible symbols. I'm not sure yeah. I want that yeah. tattoo.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he gave me a bunch of these, and I, I gave them out of the debut of my album. And now every full moon, these are free. You can't buy these. So these just free giving love. Every full moon now, go to the Zero One website. You can get these tattoos for you. You Just put them on. They last three or four days. They come off with soap and water. You can put new ones on. Mm -hmm. Kids are loving them. Um, And every full moon, they go on around the world. There's like 3 million people now go on and chant peace, love, meditation. Every full moon around the world. This is like a worldwide website. And we're trying to change the world because our world leaders are insane. (laughs) All they want is the next barrel of oil, the next rocket man the next shooting the next nra the next national rifle thing and trump and putin and all these leaders are so intent on being the man on the top of the pole or you're being the alpha leader of the world and all the average guy like me or you want and the guy who's out there who's joe canada and josephine canada and joe usa and josephine usa all we want to do is go to work come home to somebody we love and get love back break even after paying the damn taxes, have a nice evening with your wife and kids, make love, love your kids, pet your dog, and live in peace side by side. doesn't matter if we're red, yellow, black, or white. We all want the same thing. It's only the leaders that start these wars. America's been at war for 200 and 300 years, two or three wars at a time. They're insane. And so people by people, one person at a time, you can change yourself, and when you get somebody else who changes themselves, and your circle involves you and your companion and your children and your friends. And these circles interact. The whole world is then circling arms or holding hands in a giant circle, thinking of peace and love and happiness and positive energy. Hmm. And it's an amazing thing that's happening. So well, Cal and I are in L.A. right now, and I've got to go. They're downstairs waiting for me. We've got to go to this strange place called Vesalia. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, so man. Cal and I are doing promo. We're doing promo here Monday and Tuesday, and... and- you're getting my album on LA, uh, LA radio because uh, America's a year be, I'm sorry, a month behind Canada who released that a month ago, yeah. and the vinyl's out now in Canada. So and Sunrise Records, God bless them. There's like 85 stores right across Canada, and in the west, there's London Drugs that are carrying vinyl. And I actually went to London Drugs in Calgary and signed vinyl and CDs. I mean, this is like the 60s and 70s again. <laughs> Record stores are coming back, and they actually in the vinyl room they sell certain tables and power tube amplifiers and everything. So there's a whole new revolution coming in music, and I'm happy to be part of it.
0: Well, the album is by George, by Backman, Songs of George Harrison. The website is randybackman.com. And, of course, uh, uh, next week at uh, Hot Docs uh, Canadian International Documentary Festival, the documentary is called Simply Backman, and that's who we've been chatting with, the one and only Randy Backman. Dude, thank you so, so much for being someone that uh, the entire country is proud of. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome, and i, I got to say, I love being Canadian. Uh, I, Randy, I just did eight vinyl taps to end the season, and I got renewed for next season, my 13th season. Good. That'll be my lucky year of 13. Yeah. And I play, all, I play all Canadian music, obviously, on Canada Day, and it's I'm so proud to play those songs back-to-back, hits that have rocked the world, like Canadians from, like, Paul Anka right up to Justin Bieber or Carly Rae Jepsen or... Whoever the latest you know Canadian is um Sean Mendez or whatever or the The Weeknd or you know Drake anybody and I kind of know these guys I kind of feel we're in the same family we're in the same army of Canadians who have gone out against all odds and rocked the world. Yeah. So I'm a proud Canadian.
0: Good for you man. Good Randy uh Thanks. Give, give Talos a smack in the back of the head for me. Will you do that please? Yeah, he's just he's just emailed me three times saying, "Where are you? We're down in the lobby." <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll text him tell him to chill. I appreciate it, Randy. Thank okay. you, sir. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye.
0: Randy Backman on the